Would you turn with me to that passage which uh, contains no truth, Nehemiah 3? <laughs> now, what an introduction to uh, what on earth can come out of Nehemiah 3. I want to try to give you a reason to get up tomorrow morning and go to work. Uh, seriously, a, a lot of you are, are in mind-cramping jobs that uh, really make little demand upon you intellectually or or physically, or spiritually, and uh, it's tough to get up and get going. Uh, some of you women graduated from college with high honors, and, and you spend your life in a kitchen knee-deep in orange juice and cracker crumbs and, and uh, dealing with little children who need their oil changed several times a day, and it's just it's tough to get up and, and get going and to get enthusiastic about the work that that God has given you to do. Uh, I, for one, am very fortunate because I like my job very much, but there are days that it's, it's hard to get up and go to work. Some of you have the feeling that you work to make money so you can eat, so you can have enough strength to go back to work, and uh, you live for the weekends and, and for retirement. And you can really see no sense in the work that you're doing. I think what we have to do is develop uh, a biblical way of looking at our work. And believe it or not, I think one comes out of the third chapter of Nehemiah. Would you look there um, with me? Um, this, this is the, the, the sort of chapter, I think, that uh, most people uh, skip or scan. The first time you read through the book of Nehemiah or some of these Old Testament passages, Old Testament books, and you come across a chapter like this, the tendency is to read through it rapidly or to go on to the next chapter where the good things are. But that's unfortunate. Uh, Paul says all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteous, in righteousness, that the man of God may be mature, uh, fully established to all good works. And Paul's word for Scripture, hegraphe is the, in Greek, is a word for the Old Testament. Paul's talking about the Old Testament, all portions of the Old Testament. It's all profitable. Now, I have to confess, I didn't always feel that way. I, I remember once when I was in college, I was involved in a, a navigator a Bible study group, and we would, we would uh, get together to study the Word, and we would encourage one another in Scripture memory. And I remember one, one fellow one day quoting somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek, 1 Chronicles 26, 18. He quoted it with a straight face. And 1 Chronicles 26, 18 reads, At Parbar westward, fort to cause wind, to at Parbar. I mean, it sounds like uh, Greek or Hebrew, but it's not. At Parbar westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. That's First Chronicles twenty six eighteen. And when he quoted that passage, I thought for a moment he was speaking in tongues. But he went on to explain that uh, that this is a list of assignments in the temple that that uh, various guards and watchmen had. Parbar was a court in the temple, and four were, were stationed at Parbar in, in that open court in the temple complex. Two were, were stationed on the causeway, the bridge that went across the Tyropean Valley, and, and they, those were their positions. At Parbar, westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. That's a verse in the Bible. You ought to memorize that sometime. 
But I remember when he, when he quoted that passage, that's what I always thought was in the book of Chronicles. That's the sort of thing you find in the Old Testament. And there are those texts that, that seem to make no sense at all and, and, and appear to have no relevance. But even the most obscure texts, the most unlikely texts, are beneficial. Now, this text that we're looking at today, the third chapter of Nehemiah, reads like, a, like an official uh, uh, log. And I think that's what it was. It, it, Nehemiah probably recovered this text from the archives of the temple in Jerusalem. It's a list of people who worked on the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, it, it, the list starts on the north side of the city, and it continues in a counterclockwise fashion around the walls that surrounded the city of, of, of Jerusalem. And uh, the names of the workers are given. Their vocations are given. There's a little bit of uh, detail given about some of them what we would consider trivia because these are all foreign names, foreign people, foreign places. Their hometowns are given where it's appropriate. And we're told that they worked next to one another. In other words, one, each person worked on the section of the wall adjacent to the, his neighbor. They worked side by side to complete the wall until the work was done. And it's just a, a rather mundane pedestrian listing of names and places and so forth. But it's very interesting. There are some very significant things said in this text. Let me read. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. If you talk about dozing off, that would do it to you. But, but let me read portions of it. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work. They rose up and went to work. Now back in chapter 2, verse 18, the people said, Let us start building is the way the NIV, the New International Version, translates. But uh, the text simply reads, let's rise up, let's do the work. And uh, uh, in verse 20, Nehemiah says, we his servants will rise up. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, Elisha the high priest and his fellow priests rose up, is the idea. They went to work, they started to work. So even the clergy got involved in this process. Everybody knows that the clergy don't work. As someone uh, once said, uh, my pastor is six days invisible and on the seventh day incomprehensible. And that's what we think about clergymen. They don't work. They don't get their hands dirty. But these fellows did. They rolled up their sleeves and they went to work. Now, you have to realize what, what, what this work entailed. They were building a wall. And we're inclined to think of these walls as vertical structures, but actually they were massive, earth-filled uh, structures, quite large, and uh, made uh, of, of large granite blocks. A lot of work, heavy lifting, toil involved. Priests got involved, and uh, you know, clergy, the clergy always has to do something religious, so they dedicated their portion of the wall. They consecrated it to God. Now, that's more, a, that's, that's, that's more than a side note. The point that, ne that Nehemiah wants us to observe is that they felt that this was a spiritual activity. Putting blocks in, in place was just as spiritual as their work in the temple as priests. So they rolled up their sleeves and they went to work. They set these blocks in place and then they consecrated them. Now we're told in verse 2 that the men of Jericho built the adjoining section. And they weren't even from Jerusalem. They didn't have a vested interest in Jerusalem, but they made their way up from, from the Jordan Valley where Jericho was located, and they went to work. 
other other places are uh, are given to us. We're told in verse five that that the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, where Amos came from. That those people are not from Jerusalem; they're from another location. And uh, down in verse seven, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah. Those those region uh, those cities were outside the region of Judah, even. So they weren't even from that province. Um, we're told in verse 5 that the men of, uh, of Tekoa repaired one section, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. So you have some, some hard workers, then you have a few shirkers, some people who, who felt that this project was beneath them. They were noble. Uh, they were from the upper class, and they wouldn't work. But there were other nobles in verse 14. We're told that the rulers of the district of Beth Hakerem uh, repaired the dung gate. And uh, there was another ruler in verse uh, 16 who made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David. That would be on the east side of the city. And then in verse 17, there was another ruler, Hashabiah, ruler of the half district of Kela, who carried out uh, repairs for his district. And then another ruler. In verse 18, who made repairs? And in verse 19, the ruler of, of Mizpah repaired another section. So not all the nobles shirked, but some of them did. And then uh, in, in verse 8, we're told that the goldsmiths repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume mayor, uh, makers, made repairs next to that. These people were not used to heavy work, but they worked hard to rebuild their section of the wall. Uh, down in verse 12, Shalom, the son of uh, Halahesh, ruler of, the, of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. They rolled up their sleeves and they began to hoist these heavy stones into, into place. And in verse 13, we're told that, uh, that Hanun and the residents of Zenoah repaired 500 yards of wall as far as the dumb gate. Thousand cubits in some of your texts. So they uh, they did more than was required. Uh, when you turn to uh, the last part of this section, beginning with verse uh, twenty, we're told that certain people repaired those sections of the wall in front of their houses, from the angle to the entrance of the house of Elijah the high priest, and then in uh, uh, verse twenty-one. From the entrance of Elisha's house to the end of it. And down in verse 23, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. And then Benaiah, son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle in the corner. And uh, then uh, in verse 25, and Palal, the son of, of Uzai, worked opposite the angle in the tower projecting from the upper house near the court of, of the guard. Uh, incidentally, this is a, something of a side note, but when they were doing excavations in Jerusalem in 1961, Catherine, uh, Kathleen uh, Kenyon was in charge of those excavations, and they could not find the wall, Nehemiah's portion of the wall, on the east side of the city. And there was a young graduate student from the University of California who was, who was reading this chapter, chapter 3, and he noted something that no one had ever noticed before. On the north and west and south side of the city, the landmarks are the gates and, uh, and other prominent landmarks on the wall. 
But when you get to the east side, it's houses. And reference is made to people building a section of the wall opposite the gate or opposite the wall or above the wall. And the landmarks now become houses. And he realized what had happened. That I mentioned before, the, the Babylonians had torn the terraces out from under the walls that supported the structure, and the whole thing fell into the valley, so they weren't able to replace the original line of the walls. They went up to the top of the hill, and they began to build around the top of the hill, and now houses, not wall, not the wall, become the landmarks. And so they dug on top of the hill, and sure enough, they found the foundations of Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's wall, which is just another indication that where, where we can test Scripture is extremely accurate and reliable. Uh, these people probably did great damage to their own property values by, by building a wall right in front of their house, but they were willing to do it. And, and there are other things that we can say about this, uh, about this passage. Uh, Meshulam, the son of Barakia, in verse 30, made repairs opposite his living quarters. He was apparently a a single person, unmarried man. And uh, there are two other uh, single men that are mentioned, Benjamin and Hashub in verse 23, two young bachelors that made repairs in front of their house. There are the temple servants in verse 26, who were normally not Israelites. The Netanim or the temple servants were the Canaanites that were living in the land that Solomon pressed into, into service. And uh, they were hewers of wood and drawers of water, we're told. They served in, in the temple. So it's, it's possible that these people were not even Israelites at all. They were, they were descended from the original inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They were servants, temple slaves. And then finally in verse 32, between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. So we're back to the north side of the city again. So the merchants are working side by side with, with the priests. Marvelous sort of enterprise to get, this, to get people to work together like this. All different types, all different classes, social classes, economic classes. The priests and, and the laity work together. Men and women work together, single individuals with married people. Uh, these differences didn't make any difference. They all work together to build the wall. This is the sort of thing that can only be done because of the grace of God. One of the most difficult things to do is to get people to work together on any project. Uh, Jesus said that one mark of, of people that know and love God is that they gather the mark of the enemy is that he scatters. He may be able to hold people together for a short period of time, but, but he, he can't do it very long. So his efforts are always centripetal. Sooner or later, people draw apart. But one mark of God's activity, one mark of divine activity, is that people are drawn together. They work together. They're unified on the project. Now, if, if, if this sort of thing were done today, and apart from the grace of God, you know what would happen. You wouldn't get the clergy to work. They wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't get the people from Jericho to come up and work on the walls because that's not their concern. That's somebody else's problem. They would have to work on that. You wouldn't get the perfumers to work on the wall because in the first place, their union wouldn't permit it. In the second place, they'd get all sweaty if they worked uh, on the wall. You wouldn't get the, anyone to contribute an effort for the common good, they might. You know, their question would be, "What do I get out of this thing? 
What's in it for me? The mark, as Nehemiah puts it, that God's hand was upon them was that they were unified in this project. They had an enormous amount of opposition. We'll talk about this in the, in the weeks to come. Sanballat heard they were rebuilding the wall and he became angry, we're told, in chapter 4. And he couldn't oppose the project uh, officially because Nehemiah held in his hand the letters from the king. But he began to give them a great deal of, of static, flack, criticizing the project, trying to undermine it in various ways. Later we're told that he, he even uh, he, he put together a plot against the, the lives of, ne- of Nehemiah and the other leaders. And so they had to work with their swords in their hands, in one hand and their shovel and, and pick in another hand. Uh, and, and it was tough going. There were even internal problems. In chapter 5, the Jews got out of sorts with each other because of internal difficulties. In chapter 6, there was further opposition to the rebuilding in the form of a plot against Nehemiah's life. But they they built a wall. They completed it. Verse uh, 15 of chapter 6, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations saw it, Our enemies lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. There's this beautiful balance in Nehemiah that I've talked about over and over again between between divine activity and human activity, between grace, God's grace and human gumption, hard work and effort and faith. Uh, Paul would say of Nehemiah, here's a man who worked harder than any of us, but yet it was not Nehemiah, but it was God who was at work in him. Saying that beautiful balance between prudence and hard work and thoughtful and a thoughtful approach to things. He did, he, you know, he he thought things through. He did things right. He sought excellence, if you want to put it that way, in everything that he did. But he, underneath, was this sense of reliance and confidence in God and the belief that God was the one who was giving him the will and the power to do what had to be done. And that's the only thing that pulled the people together. If you turn back to chapter 2, verse 17, starting in the middle of of the verse, verse 17, Nehemiah says, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Remember last week I pointed out that the way to motivate people is to help them to see that God has a good plan for them. He wants to relieve them of their dismay and their disgrace. Was to lift their trouble from them and, and, and redeem their lives, reclaim them. It's a good plan that God has for us. And so he appeals to them to build on the basis of God's good plan. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Now he realized that if they were to complete the project at all, it was because God's hand was on them. And, uh, and then we're told uh, that they respond by saying, in the last part of verse 18, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Literally, the text reads, they strengthened their hand for the good. God's hand was upon them, so they strengthened their hand for the good. And you have to see those two ideas together. There's that balance of Nehemiah. They were strong. They were tough. They worked hard. They gave it their best. But they did so because the good hand of God was upon them. I, in my own mind, I picture a, a, a child in, a, in his father's workshop learning how to work with wood. And his hands are, are, are on the plane or on the saw, but his father's hands are on him. And that's what enables him to, to, to do the right, the right sort of job. That's what Nehemiah is saying. 
They were able to do what they did because the good hand of God was upon them. And the result of that kind of activity is that the world was put on notice. Did you see that? There are several benefits that grew out of this, uh, out of this project. It benefited Israel. It gave them a, a, a safe place in which to dwell. It was for their good. But it also was a message. It sent a message to the world outside, to the unbelieving world, that God was at work within this community. It was their unity, their willingness to work hard together for the common good that put the world on notice. And that's why Nehemiah tells us in chapter 6, when he gives us his final report, that their enemies lost confidence because they realized that this work was done with the help of God. This wasn't mere human activity. And whenever the world sees that result in the church, it always makes them sit up and take notice. That's, that's what Paul means uh, when he says in, in Philippians 2, you, you, you people over there in Philippi need to be working together for the sake of the gospel. Striving together is the way he puts it. Working hard in a spirit of unity for the, for the cause of the gospel. That, he says, is a sign to unbelievers of your salvation and of their destruction. In other words, the, the fact that people can work hard together for one another is a sign to the world that there is something more than human activity happening here because the world can't produce that kind of effort. But we in the church of, of Jesus Christ can. And it's a sign to the world of the reality of our faith. That's why disunity is, is, is so wrong. That's why it's so destructive. That's why... The Old Testament says God hates it. You know, it really is not true to say that God does not hate anyone. <laughs> we, we sometimes make that point. But, but the Old Testament, in Proverbs 6, makes it very clear that God hates a gossip. Proverbs puts it that way. It's not that gossip ultimately separates any way from, anyone from God. But it is the most destructive thing that can happen in the body of Christ because it sows disunity, it fragments the body, and, it, and, it, 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 and then we fail to have the sort of impact on our, on our society and our culture that God intends us to have. It's a very, very serious thing. It, 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 it's the most devilish thing that can happen in the body of Christ when we do not work together with one another, when we don't support one another, when we don't encourage one another. When we don't make every effort to help one another unto God, you know what to do if, if you have some, if you're concerned about something that's going on within the body of Christ, if you have something against a brother, you go to that brother. You don't talk to someone else. You go in a spirit of, uh, of, of love and concern to help that person grow. But you don't talk about them some other place because that fragments the body. It's so destructive. It's so hurtful. We can't permit it to happen among us here as a body. Because it has to do with our impact upon the world around us. It is so good to see unity in a body. It encourages all of us. In fact, David says in Psalm 133, it's sweet. He says, oh, how, how good and how precious is the way the NIV translates it. How good and how precious it is. 
To see the, the saints living together in unity and caring for each other and working together on projects for one another's behalf. What a, what a precious thing that is. Uh, he uses the word, the, the, the word that's translated precious in the NIV, is the same root that Naomi's name is based on. You remember Naomi in the, in the story of Ruth? She came back from Moab and all these terrible things had happened to her. She lost her husband and her life had fallen apart. And she came back and, and, and people were saying, hello, Naomi, good to have you back. And she said, oh, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara means bitter in Hebrew. The anonym of bitter is sweet. Her name meant sweet. She said, don't call me sweet. There's nothing sweet about my life. It's bitter. It's the root that David uses here. Oh, how sweet, he, he said. You know, tough guys don't say things are sweet, but David did. How sweet it is, he says, for, for God's people to live and work, toil together, side by side in unity. He says, oh, it's like uh, the day of... of uh, consecration of the priest when they poured that great big bucket of oil all over the priest and he ran down over his face and down off his beard, dripped off the hems of his garment. I said, oh, David said, that's so good. And it's like the dews that fall on Mount, Mount Hermon coming down on Mount Zion. Uh, that's, uh, that's an eastern uh, imagery. We, we, it's hard for us to fit into that. But David is thinking of the two things in his mind that seem sweet. When he, when, on the day of the consecration of the high priest, when they poured oil on the high priest's head, David said, oh, that is so good. That is, oh, that is marvelous. That is so precious. Now, if we were writing that psalm today, we would say unity is like a, a Dan Marino bomb. Or it's like a, a Lynn Swan catch or something. You know, oh, that's beautiful, we'd say. We see, that's what David is saying. He's evoking an image. Oh, it's so good. So sweet, so precious, so important that we all work together. We don't have any option, you see. It has to do with our impact upon the world. As a matter of fact, David even makes that point in Psalm 133. He says, because there, that is at Jerusalem, when the saints are gathered around God in Jerusalem and they love each other and they're working together for the common good, he says, there God can bestow his blessing, life eternal. The, the, the thing that frustrates God more than anything, the only thing, really, that ties his hands is the, is the disunity of the body. When the body is not functioning as a unit, together, loving each other, working hard on each other's behalf, it ties God up. He, 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 can't, he, he can't do what he has purposed to do. It's a very serious thing. We, we have to take it very seriously. Can't permit disunity. We need to work hard on one another's behalf. Now, that's what these people did. And they completed the work because we're told they had a will to work, but because they were well aware of the good hand of God upon them. Now, the question I want to raise in, in just a minute or two that I have left is how do you get people to approach their work that way? How do you get them to work in the church and in the marketplace and, and, and to work hard? Uh, there's a great deal of inertia in all of us. That's what sin did. Is you know, Once you're at rest, it's, it's hard to, to stop resting. And uh, it's laziness, basically. Well, how do you get people to work for others? How do you get them to work hard? On what basis can we encourage people and motivate them to work? How do we motivate ourselves? Well, I have to go back to 2.18, the passage that I read before. 
Our motivation comes from the hand of God. We can put our hand to the work because we know God's hand is upon us. It's always true. Our motivation comes from God. Remember last week, I was talking about the, a way to motivate people. The way you motivate people is to, is to evoke in them a love for God so that they want to serve. They see his plan is good and they realize that he has power to, to make good what he's purposed in our lives. You don't have to lash people. You don't have to drive them. You don't have to bribe them. You don't have to beg them. You don't have to nag them. God moves people just as he can move mountains if he chooses. And uh, we need to keep reminding people and we need to keep reminding ourselves that our motivation to work comes from God. It's because the good hand of God is upon us. Now, I, Paul... I think states it in another way. Would you, would you turn with me to Colossians three, chapter twenty, chapter three, verse twenty-three? I said earlier, as I started uh, the message, that we need to develop a work ethic, a biblical way of looking at work. And uh, I, I like to avoid terms like the Protestant work ethic or the Puritan work ethic because people seem to think that. That those are that's an ethic that only a certain type of person, either a Puritan or a Protestant, has. But what we really want to do is develop a biblical concept of effort in work. And Paul states it here in Colossians three twenty three. Whatever you do, he says, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. You see, that's what that's what motivated the people on the wall. They were working hard with all of their heart, but they were doing it because God's hand was upon them. They saw his plan for their life. They realized his power was available to them, and they were doing it for him. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's working for the Lord and not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. Now, the, the issue is why work hard at all? Why should we make any effort to work? No one seems to appreciate it. And, and people are, are they're, they're trying to market articles, commodities that are not worth anything. Why, why, why should I be concerned about making the little box that I make as well as I can possibly make it? Well, Nehemiah teaches us and Paul teaches us that we need to work hard at what we're doing, that effort is good. That hard work is good. The question that we ought to ask ourselves about one another is, what can I make in terms of, of dollars and cents? But rather, what is it that I'm making? The question that stockholders ought to be asking people is asking their companies is not, you know, what, what percentage of the profits is going back into the company that ought to be going into my pockets, but rather... Is this thing that we're making worthwhile? Is this little black box that we market, is it really something worthwhile making? Now, I'm talking about what we do in the church, and I'm talking about what we do in the marketplace. It doesn't make any difference as Christians. Whatever we do, we need to do the best we can possibly do. We need to make a product that's worthwhile and invest our effort in, in worthwhile things. Now, that, that, that's true in the church, in our, in our service here in the church. You, as teachers, as workers, servants within the body of Christ. If you, if you teach a Sunday school class, 
Hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll take this to heart and you'll study hard for that class and you'll spend time and effort on it. For the kids' sake? No. No, for the Lord's sake. Because the kids will never think to tell you how much they appreciate it, or rarely will. We don't do things for people. We do them for God, indirectly for people, but directly for God. Uh, Howard Hendricks used to say, rooms are teachers, too. And, and therefore, rooms communicate. So if we're going to do the job right, we're, we're going to spend time making our rooms attractive, warm, happy places to be. So kids won't walk into the Sunday school classes in a sterile, cold environment. And if we're going to do the thing well, then we're going to get there on time or well before the time, 15 minutes, 20 minutes before time, even though it's disruptive to our family life because we don't want children walking into the Sunday school class and into a cold and empty room. That's not a happy place to be. Our tendency in the church is to think, well, this is church work. You know, I have to be on time in the marketplace because my job is dependent upon it. But we don't take that approach toward things we do here, but we must. We must. We have to be willing to work hard. An emphasis that I forgot to make in Nehemiah 3, but one which occurs over and over again, is this word, they repaired, they repaired, they repaired. It, it, it occurs over and over again. And actually the Hebrew word is they made strong. They caused it to be very strong. They built it better than it was before. They worked hard at their task. And, and if we're teachers of children here, we need to work hard at our tasks. Give it our best efforts. Why? Well, as Colossians 3 tells us, because we're doing it for the Lord, not for our children. If you're a mother in the home and, and you have the task of uh, homemaking, then that ought to be your approach. To do it well, not for your husband, not for your children, but for the Lord. Your husband may never see. He may never appreciate it. But we do what we do for the Lord. You remember the story of Michelangelo painting away in some obscure corner of the Sistine Chapel and, and uh, taking great pains to do it properly. And someone said uh, to Michelangelo, why are you doing that? No one will ever see up in that corner. He said, God will see. God sees. He knows. And what we do, we do for the Lord. I was reading this past week the story of uh, a Welsh miner whose name was Reese Howells, who worked uh, tw a 12-hour shift in a coal mine. And uh, afterward, he would walk two miles to another, uh, to another town to lead Bible studies. Each night, after a 12-hour shift, he would walk two miles to do this other location, and then he would walk the two miles back home. And uh, one day as he uh, came home, his, uh, he, it happened that there was a downpour that night and he was drenched. And as he came back, his father said, son, why are you doing that? I wouldn't do that for 20 pounds, he said. We would say, I wouldn't do that for $100. And his response was, neither would I. You see, uh, we, we are used to thinking that money and praise, commendation, promotion are the great motivating factors, but they're not because we've all discovered that those things, uh, after a while, don't motivate us. They cease to have any value. Even the appreciation of our mates at what we do or the rare word of thanks that you get from your children, after a while, that, that ceases to motivate. 
when, when sin entered the human race, one of, one of the consequences was laziness and a lack of, of desire to do what we do and do it well. But uh, what we need to realize is that God sees what we do. God wants things to be well done. And God appreciates it when we do it well. He sees and he knows. And therefore, uh, we can do things, we can work hard, and we can do them for the Lord, and we receive his commendation. Then when we stand before him, and he tells us, you've done well, we'll, we'll know that we're appreciated for what we've done. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, that we can know this truth, that you do care about how things are done. It matters to you about the things that are done. Help us, Lord, to be willing to, to work hard for your sake, to get up tomorrow morning and, and approach whatever job that we have to do, knowing that, uh, that you see what we do and you appreciate it. And help us, Lord, as, as a body to work hard for the sake of one another, to be willing to set aside our own rights and our, uh, our own self-interest, our own personal goals, and, and labor to see one another matured and perfected in Christ. We realize that that comes down from above, that, that motivation, that incentive. And, uh, and therefore, we want to gather this morning around you and worship you depend upon you, draw from you the strength that we need to do the jobs that you've called us to do. Thank you for this work. In Jesus' name, amen.